Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucette, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to a new edition of Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette, and as we do every week, a brand new guest talking about their experience in the world of martial arts and anything else they're involved in. My guest this week is a combat veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps, been studying warrior culture for over two decades, a journey that's taken him to two dozen countries, multiple battlefields, and some of the last warrior temples on the planet. He leveraged his former life as a war correspondent to become an international expert in how the best teams continuously improve pipeline and performance. He's a Tampa-based TEDx speaker and has worked studying teams in more than two dozen countries, some of the most dangerous places on the planet, has been published in news outlets including Time, CNN, NBC, Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, and Inc. He shares his experiences with warrior culture in a nationally syndicated business column with the business journals and has authored three books on the topic of warrior mindset and business. Oh, he also holds a black belt in Aikido. Please welcome to the show my guest today, Mr. Sean Rhodes. How are you doing today, sir? Thank you, sir. It's doing great, man. I got to get you to pay to read that interview in front of my gigs. That was good. <laughs> well, I do voiceover for a living, <laughs> so I <laughs> might be able yeah. to do that for you. We'll work out a deal maybe. But All right. <laughs> so like I do with all my guests, let's kind of jump into the beginning. Where was that, that first spark, that first interest in martial arts, and, and kind of what led to that? So my family, I learned after probably being a teenager and doing some genealogy, my family has fought in every war that the United States has been in since Bacon's Rebellion. So this is like pre-revolutionary war, right? Now, I didn't know this growing up. I just knew that my family uh, never stepped down from a challenge. That was something that was given to me as a young man. But as a young man, I was not a warrior by any means. I was the guy that got picked on, the guy that got bullied. And like a lot of martial artists, that's their, their motivating factor, if you will. You know, they wanted to learn how to defend themselves. So they get into martial arts for that reason. Mm -hmm. Now, I had a mother that refused to let me participate in any organized contact sports. So no football, no basketball, even definitely no wrestling. Wow. She said, you know, I don't want you in any of that. That's too dangerous. There's concussions. People are breaking bones. And so I said, well, what about karate or some kind of martial art like that? She said, yeah, that sounds safe enough. At least it's a little more supervised. Now, you and I know that that's probably the more dangerous sport you could be in. <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. So, you know, as a, yes, as a very young kid, you know, seven, eight years old, uh, I was riding the wave of the karate kid fame in the late 80s. And there was a karate dojo on every corner. So I joined up at one and really enjoyed the practice and the training and stuck with the martial arts pretty much the rest of my life. As I moved around the country as a young man, I'd always find the dojo nearest to me and begin training there. So in addition to karate, I've been able to practice Aiki Jiu-Jitsu, uh, Yaido, Yaijutsu, and Tai Chi. And the thing that really probably attracted me the most was that warrior side of the culture. So in addition to just wanting to know how to protect myself, I was really interested in the confidence that I saw the really experienced martial artists around me have. And I, I know you've seen this yourself where the people that have to talk about their martial arts and their ranking and all that, they're probably not very good fighters. 
it's the folks that are quiet. You know, that, that guy sitting at the end of the bar that gets even more relaxed, the more tense things get, right. he's the person I'm really concerned about, you know, cause that's the one that knows how to fight. Well, I was really interested in that really subtle, relaxed mindset of confidence. So in addition to practicing the martial arts physically, I really wanted to get out there and start studying them internally. And that became a bit of a challenge because in the U.S. culture, we're very physical about our martial arts. Mm -hmm. And because of the way that we kind of operate here, religion is left out of many of the martial arts that we do practice. You think of martial arts like, like Tai Chi or like Karate or even Judo, they have these deeply religious backgrounds. Their founders were all uh, very religious people. But yet here in the U.S., you know, that's kind of frowned upon because we're all about religious liberty and freedom. And many of us come from this Judeo-Christian background that is antithetical to maybe Buddhism or Shintoism or Taoism. Right. But I was interested in that. Like, what's the connection between these ancient religious cultures and the martial arts? And that got me studying about Zen Buddhism and about the samurai. And that's really what began my journey that ultimately led me around the world studying warriors kind of on the battlefield. Wow. So let's back up just a little bit. That very first karate yeah. school you went to. First of all, do you remember which style of karate it was? And what was it about that specific school? What you know, what what are some things you remember about that? Maybe like your first class. What made you try it out and then think, hey, I'm gonna stick with this one? Well, I like the fact that I could finally be in a sport that didn't determine my value on how fast I could run or how hard I could throw a ball. Okay. So it was, it was deeply physical karate schools for kids are basically just how much can we wear these little fellows down? You know, like that's, that's the <laughs> mindset. Cause you're not, yep. you're, you're, not, you're not really picking up any advanced kata, you know, it's like, just give you the basics so that when you become a teenager and an adult, you can really refine the basics. And so for me in the early days, it was that I could be around a group of people that I didn't have to try to outrun. I didn't have to try to outthrow or outjump because I wasn't very athletic. I could just be in a place where an instructor would give me the, the help, the guidance that I needed, and then they'd leave you alone to practice it. And I really appreciated that about that particular school. Now, what federation or style it was, no idea. Oh. Think about the most American karate school in the 80s. Uh, that was probably the one I was in. <laughs> okay. So how long did you stick with, do you remember like what belt you got to in that system? Oh, I was probably like an orange belt or maybe a blue belt, a very low rank because I was nine or 10 years old. And I see some schools will promote nine and 10 year olds to black belt. I have some philosophical concerns with that, but mm -hmm. you know, a school can give a kid whatever color belt they want. I think I'm, I'm, I'm of the Mr. Miyagi mindset where a belt is good for holding your pants up. <laughs> yep. um, I know that when I, when I traveled to Japan and practiced Aikido with these, these masters of the art, uh, they, yeah, they saw I had a white belt and they wondered why I didn't have a black belt. But for them, and I'm sure you've heard this from many of your guests in traditional Japanese martial arts, the black belt is just the beginning. Yep. It's like passing the fifth grade. Uh, you know, you, you definitely don't have a high school diploma, a university degree, master's or PhD. Like you can barely spell. Here's your black belt. And that's the, the mindset that I saw over there in Japan. And I've become a firm believer of that. My black belt holds my gi up, but even working with a white belt, I learned something, which is why I keep training. Okay. So now did you stick with martial arts throughout your childhood or did you, after that school, did you switch to another one for a while? Yeah. So I was uh, karate and then I moved into, you know, I was just training at whatever dojo I could sign up at okay. because I, like many kids, uh, you know, I wasn't driving myself there. So it was uh, right. wherever my mother was willing to give me a ride. And uh, that ended up being uh, Aiki Jiu-Jitsu, I think, was the next one that nice. I was involved in. Um, Iaido and Iaijitsu, they kind of combined them in that school because oh. uh, in, in Aikido and Aiki Jiu-Jitsu, the sword is a very foundational element of that. So usually where one is practiced, they're, they're teaching the sword as well. 
And then I was in Tai Chi for many years because they were the ones that were really well connected into the, the spiritual and the philosophical roots of their art. Mm-hmm. Most Tai Chi teachers are practitioners of other Chinese medicines, acupuncture, they're herbalists, um, you know, they're, they're uh, therapists, there are you know, different arts that really help them integrate Tai Chi with what it is they do, rather than yeah, I show up three times a week, I've got a black belt, I train, and then I go home. I, I found that the Tai Chi practitioners I was able to meet had a really good understanding of the philosophy and the practical application of their art. And that's something that has really attracted me and kept me in the martial arts that I've always been interested to know, how do I transfer what I'm learning on the mat or on the battlefield? Because I was actually able to see martial arts practiced in, in real life in combat. What's the application there to my daily life? Because if all I'm doing is getting a good workout, I might as well be at the gym because there's less chance of me being hurt. You know, I'm going to drop a weight on my foot. That's like the biggest risk at a gym. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in, in Aikido every day, if I don't fall right, my shoulder is going to dislocate. You know, right. my wrist is going to break. So there's a lot more risk involved in these uh, martial arts that we all practice. Well, if it's a good workout, that's one thing, but I'm interested to know how can it make me a better business leader, a better father, a better husband? Because if you can't do those things, I might as well be at the gym. So you were definitely lucky. I mean, compared to me, like the town I grew up in, I had one martial arts school, so I had no choice. It was, <laughs> yeah. it was that one or nothing until I got it old enough yeah. where I could drive 30 miles to go to another school. So yeah, you were, it sounds like uh-huh. you had at least a few different options, which are kind of nice. Even as a young kid, you said you couldn't drive yourself, but at least you, you had right. a few options. It wasn't just, this is where you have to go. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's definitely a bonus, I would say. <laughs> so then as you got older, yeah, obviously, it was, it was fun. yeah, I mean, as, as you got older, you, like I said, you stuck with it and you, and you started incorporating everything else. Now talk about some of your, your travels and some of the other, you mentioned Japan a little bit. What are some of the other places you got to train in and the, those styles of martial arts in other countries? So my training in travel, so to speak, came through the Marine Corps. And when I joined the Marine Corps, there's probably a good story there that might apply to, to the warrior mindset that a lot of the martial artists that might be listening to this or studying themselves. Um, what got me into the Marine Corps was not because I was, you know, a tough guy. I wasn't, I didn't have a Spartan mindset by any means whatsoever, but they were the only ones out of all of the military branches here in the U.S. that were espousing warrior values. You think of the recruiting that you've seen for all the armed services, you know, the Navy's all about travel and the Air Force is about all the benefits in the Army. Well, let's say it's travel and benefits for them. <laughs> uh, but the, the Marine Corps, no, it's honor, courage, and commitment. Like that's their tagline. And that really attracted me because I'd been studying these warrior cultures, you know, reading books like the Hagakure and the Code of the Samurai and these you know, treatises and texts that had been written by these ancient warriors on how to apply the mindset of warrior culture into daily life. And I saw that connection there in the Marine Corps that they hadn't forgotten their roots. So when I joined the Marine Corps, they have their own basic martial arts program. Uh, at the time, it was called MCMAP, the Marine Corps Martial Arts Program. And think like the, the early days of MMA, uh, where it was just, just you know, how, how quickly can you down your opponent? That's basically what they were teaching us in boot camp. And they gave us the caveat, keep in mind, recruits, that when you leave three months of training, you know just enough to get your butt kicked, but probably not enough to win a fight. That comes later. Okay. And that really resonated well with me in my martial arts, because in the Marines, they teach you how to have a very healthy ego, because they're expecting an 18-year-old to like take a bunker. You know, that requires a healthy ego. You have to have a lot of confidence in yourself to do that. Well, their martial arts are the same way. So they said, just be aware. You probably don't know as much as you think you do. And as I ended up, you know, going through four years of the Marine Corps, being through two tours of combat in Iraq, I got to be around these men and women that were dedicated, not just to physical fitness, but to keeping themselves alive on the battlefield. 
So there were many people involved in a wide variety of martial arts. Every base that I went to usually had a couple of dojos, sometimes formal, sometimes informal, where people would just get together to grapple or fight or box or whatever it might be. Um, you know, usually the way to solve an argument was just to go to the ground <laughs> in the Marine Corps. That's kind of how they taught us to solve problems because that's our lifestyle, right? That's what you're expected to do in combat. So um, the person that could prove themselves physically usually won the argument first. And that mindset, again, that warrior mindset really applied directly into the battlefield uh, served me well. So there's a couple of things that I picked up in training that both in the martial arts dojos I trained at and in the Marine Corps basic training that kept me alive on the battlefield. And this might be something that would be helpful for your listeners, because I'm one of the you know 4% of the U.S. that served in the military and only one of the 2% that's actually gotten to apply that experience in combat. So all these martial arts that we practice, I'm maybe one of the you know few people that can tell you, hey, here's how it actually works. Okay. Well, all of the yelling that happens in some dojos, and not, again, not every dojo does this, not every sensei does this, but a lot of people are very physical. They're very uh, overbearing. You know, they'll, they'll get in your face to correct you. And a lot of people that that's taken the wrong way just because they're, they're sensitive about it. They don't want to be corrected that way. And it does push some students out of dojos. Well, that happened to me as a young martial arts student. Didn't quite understand it. Just thought maybe these people were not nice human beings. <laughs> then when I was in Paris Island, you know, three months of basic training in Marine Corps boot camp to earn the title of Marine, I got yelled at every day. They would get up in your ear and just as loud as they could possibly scream. And you had to stand there and take it. Now, again, I thought these are just some sadistic human beings. Like they're all sadomasochists, every single one of them. But then when I got to combat and I realized, you know, there are rounds coming in, like bullets are cracking, zipping by my ears. I still had to be able to function and operate, still had to be able to think clearly. And without the training that I'd gotten in the dojos as a child and in Marine Corps basic training, and then even after that in the fleet Marine Corps, where people would just yell at you to correct you. And that was how it was. It wasn't because they were mean. It was because they understood you need to be able to operate under pressure. Loud noises that would really disorient or like a lot of people lose focus will get you killed if you can't operate under that pressure and respond. And so in a lot of the martial arts training that we have, you know, people are like, man, there's, there's, you know, eight people attacking me. We call that Randori in, in Aikido, you know, eight people attacking me. I've got a freestyle and just get out of this. Mm-hmm. What's the, the practical purpose of that? You may not ever be attacked by eight people, but in a stressful situation, maybe it's just one person, but they're coming at you like eight people because they're high, they're on drugs, they're angry at you, whatever it looks like, right? You have to be able to operate under that pressure. And so I feel like the, the stress that students are put through, both in the martial arts and in the military, has a very practical purpose that sometimes is lost when we're just concerned about getting yelled at. <laughs> it's a great point, actually. Yeah, it's a lot of people don't realize that. And I know I've seen parents pull kids out of schools because the instructor was, you know, too mean or something like mean. that. And, and, yeah, and, and, and exactly. that, that happened. I mean, yeah, there are some that are just mean. That's the more traditional ones. And that's how, how they were taught, how their instructors were taught. And, you know, I interviewed an instructor that said if he taught like he did in the uh, 80s and 90s, he'd have no students. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Uh, t- obviously, time, <laughs> exactly. times have changed just a little bit. So, <laughs> so now you mentioned four years in the Marine Corps. So then after the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. uh, you obviously started uh, the rest of your life, as, as a lot of people say. And, you know, how did you get into, you know, what you do now? How did that, uh, you know, with what you did in the Marine Corps and what you did in your martial arts, how did that kind of lead to your, your current career? And, and how do you kind of blend martial arts into that? Well, for sure. Uh, it, was, it was after the Marine Corps that I was able to travel to Japan. And you, you did ask about that. Yes, so let me correct. make sure I, I touch on that point. And then we'll, I'm happy to dive into how I apply the martial arts and this warrior philosophy into the work that I do in organizations. So after the Marine Corps, I ended up going to work as a civilian for the Department of Defense. 
And one of the opportunities they gave me was go do a couple weeks worth of work at Yokota Air Force Base in Japan. We'll pay for you to fly there. And I was able to work out a deal where, you know, I had three weeks of leave built up, you know, personal time off, and I wanted to burn it all because going to Japan had been a dream my whole life, studying these warrior philosophies and especially the samurai. So I got to Yokota, did my two weeks on the Air Force Base worth of work, and then just took off into the countryside. I knew I wanted to go to Hambu Dojo, which is the Aikido World Headquarters in Tokyo. I did a class there, had an awesome time, was one of the only Western faces on the mat, and I was treated extremely well. Um, you know, all of the uh, people that were there, the old Japanese men and women were more than happy to pick me up as a partner and train with me. I didn't feel like I was being pushed to the side at all. You know, they kind of took me under their wing, if you will. But what I knew I wanted to do was also get out to where Aikido had actually been founded, which is a place called Iwama in Japan. It's where the uh, founder of Aikido, uh, his name is Morihai Ueshiba, and everybody calls him O-sensei. That's where he retired to during World War II to get away from the city, because in Japan, every city was getting firebombed by allied forces. Mm -hmm. So he took off to the countryside, had a piece of land there, and he built a dojo and he built a shrine to the Aikido gods, if you will. That's called the Aiki Jinja, and it's still an operational, functional dojo. Even though his family doesn't live there anymore, you know, the place, uh, it's, it's not abandoned because the students still keep it up, but it's a functional dojo with a little living uh, unit beside it where the founder's family lived at one time. Across the street is a shrine uh, for the Aikido, you know, <laughs> kami, the, the, mm -hmm. the deities, if you will. And in order to go train there, I really love the process because you can't just show up. You have to have a letter of introduction. I think very traditional Japanese, right? You, you, your sensei has to write a letter of recommendation for you to be able to train there. Wow. So I had my sensei in the U.S. produce that letter, send it over. They said, great, you know, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see you when you see you, basically. So I take all the trains and the bullet trains and everything to get out there to the countryside. And I show up to this dojo and they still give you the experience that a warrior monk might have had hundreds of years ago. So think like Shaolin Temple before the uh, current regime took it over and kind of made it into a tourist attraction, if you will, because mm -hmm. I know you can pay to go be a Shaolin monk, you know, to train at the temple. Right. But in this particular case, they asked for a couple dollars a day worth of living expenses, but I had to sleep on the mat in the, in the uh, dojo itself, wake up, meditate, hour of training, two or three hours of cleaning, just like I'd had to do in the military. They work you in the garden. So it's an organic garden they run where they're growing things like radishes and things like that to eat. Uh, so it's a vegetarian uh, you know, kind of a property, if you will. So I had to work in the garden, more training, maybe a half hour, an hour worth of rest in the afternoon. And then you're back to fixing things and cleaning and training more. And that's every day of the week. Wow! So it was an incredibly intense schedule, very physically exhausting. But that's the schedule that is thought of as a very traditional way of like, you know, you're, you're going to live on property. <laughs> that's what you have to go through. And so I was able to do that for a couple of weeks, you know, travel to these famous sites that in, in the world of Aikido are well-known images like the waterfall where all of these Aikidoists purify themselves under. It's a holy site, be able to stand in that water and perform the, uh, the Shinto rites of purification. So it was a really cool experience to be able to do that. And I think what I really got out of it most of all was the, the holiness of this art, because these people live so close to the land, so close to nature. You know, there, there's no air conditioning in this dojo, right? You know, slide the screens open and that's where you are. Whatever the temperature is outside, that's the temperature you're training in. <laughs> and that's, that's a drastic uh, difference to a lot of the dojos I've gotten <laughs> trained in here in the U.S. Oh, yeah. And the, the, the way that they approach their art uh, was just ancient. I felt like it was 
really tied into the roots of combat rather than what a lot of people think of as Aikido and you know, all these flowing throws and silent breakfalls and things like that. The folks at Iwama were still practicing probably like combative arts were practiced a hundred years ago. And that was incredible to be a part of. Wow. That sounds like a really cool experience. Yeah. Especially the 5 a.m. wake up calls to, you know, rake the gravel. <laughs> you know, <laughs> think like Zen monk, because that's how these folks lived. That's really cool. And you said you stayed there for just a few weeks only? That was all my body could take, <laughs> I honestly. You know, and I, I, I've been through three months at Paris Island, seven days a week getting yelled at, calisthenics, obstacle courses. Being at Iwama for just a couple of days was more intense than all of that put together. Uh, just because I, in, in Paris Island, I was about survival because I knew it was going to last three mm -hmm. months and I know I didn't want to die on the first day. But being at Iwama, I wanted to represent the folks that had recommended me. And I didn't want word to get back that, you know, this, this dirtbag showed up and he's just lazing about not doing anything. So I really threw myself into it full force. And the schedule that they had me on, they give you the opportunity to put in full force everything you do. This is something that is culturally known about Japanese people. Whatever they do, they tend to do it with excellence. They really throw themselves 100% into it, whether it's pottery or flower arranging or bonsai or martial arts. Mm -hmm. And so that's exactly what they allowed me the opportunity to do. And I realized, wow, if I was going to do this full time, <laughs> probably would have been better done in my 20s. Because <laughs> uh, yeah. I think I was in my 30s when I tried. My body was not in the same condition. Wow. I know I had met years ago when I lived in California, I met a gentleman who was a former Navy SEAL. And he had actually said something similar that mm -hmm. he, had, he went through. He said the training he went through to become a Navy SEAL was actually easier than the training he went through at his 80s karate school. <laughs> was very traditional mm, and stuff. And yeah, he said, totally. he said, yeah, I'd, I'd take that, the, the Navy SEAL training two or three more times over that karate school again. <laughs> so, yeah, they're, um, they're training you for different things. Exactly. Right. And I feel like the, because, you know, going through military training and being able to, to follow these troops around, even through their schools. So I've been able to follow uh, scout snipers through their training. I don't perform the training, but I'm there to, to cover it and practice it, you know, alongside them uh, as far as, uh, you know, helping them clear houses and things like that. Right. And we can talk about, you know, what I did in the Marine Corps, if it'd be interested to your listeners, but uh, being able to go through it with them, it's definitely more mental than it is anything else. The idea is you die before you quit. And that was something I feel like that the martial arts does give to people. If you stick with it long enough, it gives mm -hmm. you that kind of do or die mentality. But in the military, it's the first thing that they try to inculcate in, in mindset. And this really applies. It's, it's ancient warrior philosophy, where uh, if you're on the battlefield, you know, and you're knocked down and somebody cuts your legs out from under you, you pick up a stick and you still try to stab them, you know, just to use whatever you have to win so that death or victory are your only options. And that's something that was told to me as a martial artist, but I really learned it and saw it firsthand when I was on the battlefields that I was on. That's good though. I mean, that's, that's, that sounds like an, an amazing experience as you've had. So, so then talk about then, of course, like you said, after you left and, and kind of mm -hmm. jumped, jumped into the, the adult world, the business world, and what, what led to some of those decisions on, on where your career went. And like you said, talk about how you used your stuff you learned in the Marine Corps and stuff you, your military training and your, and your martial arts training in, into your everyday life then with this business. Well, something that might be of interest to your listeners would probably be the transition. Okay. So, and this is something that is, you know, it's, it's being talked about a lot more, thankfully, in society, you know, these veterans transitioning off of battlefields and then coming back into society. Right. Uh, and there are great authors like Sebastian Younger that are writing books like Tribe is one of his books, uh, which is about the kind of integration that used to happen in these warrior cultures, where a warrior would come back from the battlefield 
but his culture was more willing to accept that because all of the men had been to war as well. And so he didn't come back to a culture that didn't understand what he'd been through or she had been through. Rather, it was, you know, we've, we've, we've been there, you know, that was 20 years ago, but I fought in this battle and now you're the next generation to fight and they get where people are coming from. Mm -hmm. I think the challenge that we have today, and this applies to martial artists as well, is that most people in Western society are really insulated from violence. And martial artists are some of the rare people that, you know, like we volunteer to show up every week to have people throw punches and kicks at us. Mm -hmm. So it's it's kind of a weird mindset if you think about it, um, in that most of these folks do everything they can to avoid violence. We step into it. Now, the challenge there is that we've got to be very careful about being over aggressive when we leave the dojo. And a lot of veterans have this challenge when they leave the military in that there's a lot of great things to carry from the mat or from the battlefield, but there's some things that need to be left there as well. Because in polite society, you know, it's not the the person who throws the strongest punch that wins. (laughs) We have to operate in a little more civil fashion. And so for a lot of martial artists out there, a lot of veterans, um, they're, they're challenged with this. And I see it all the time. I see people that are great on the mat and yet they have challenges uh, interacting with, you know, everyday people that know nothing about the martial arts or about how to, you know, put somebody into an arm bar that's throwing all of their weight behind a punch. Mm-hmm. There's just a, there's, there's a difference there that I think it's really important we be aware of and then understand, hey, how do we take the things we do learn on the mat and apply them in ways that make us better people? Um, because I think that's the idea of the martial arts today. It's what it's evolved to. Very few opportunities for you or I to get into a fist fight unless we go out looking for it. Right. However, plenty of opportunities for conflict. So if the things we're learning on the mat don't apply to how we deal with conflict and how we create win-win scenarios in our daily lives, on our jobs and with our relationships, then yeah, the martial arts is just a hobby. Um, I never wanted it to be just a hobby for me. I wanted to figure out how do I begin applying this into every area of my life that I possibly could to make me a better human being. And that means I've got to figure out ways to take what I learned, use it to better myself and use it to better the people around me. If I can teach them anything that I you know, might've picked up along the way that they're ready to learn. Mm-hmm. So then what led to, I mean, I mentioned in your intro, you're you know, a TEDx, yeah, yeah. so you're, you're a public speaker, not something you probably do a lot of, I'm sure, assuming in the military or did you? Well, believe it or not, I had the rare job in the military that if you think of like, who's the, the public speaker of the military, that was the job I had. Oh, okay. So in the Marine Corps, they called it the role of a combat correspondent. Okay. So for those of you out there that have ever seen the movie Full Metal Jacket, an old Stanley Kubrick movie. Yep. Uh, I was I was the character Joker. So the guy with the notepad and the camera that would just kind of wander around unit to unit on the battlefield, writing stories and taking photos. Oh, okay. That so, was my gig. So it was a little more of a natural progression then for that, for your career afterwards. It, it was. Yeah, it was. I was uh, also trained in public relations and crisis communication. So the, I was the only one, you think a 19 year old being pushed in front of a 2000 person unit when the CNN cameras show up. Wow. And they said, you've been trained in it. Get out there, do your job. And so I was the one that had to stand up there, just like you see, uh, you know, Jen Psaki doing the White House now in mm-hmm. front of all the reporters. That was my gig, which was a lot of fun. Very, very stressful. So I use a lot of what I learned in the martial arts to kind of keep myself calm and collected in environments where if I say the wrong thing, not only will I be demoted, but I'll probably be sent to an even scarier place, if that can be imagined. You know? Right. Like, where is even more combat happening? Because Rhodes, that's where we're putting you now. So, <laughs> um, so that was my job. So with getting towards the end of your career in the Marines, was that already in your mind? This is what I want to do? Or was there a, during like you talked about the transition and stuff, was there something where you're like, I don't know what I want to do with the rest of my life. I'm not sure. 
or did, did you, after those four years, did you pretty have, have a good idea that this is, I enjoy this, I love this, I want to keep doing something similar? Well, something that I think a lot of your listeners will align with is that I loved helping people build bridges from where they were to where they wanted to go. Okay. So for, for the listeners out there, think about if you've ever been put in an instructor position, or maybe you're the senpai in your dojo, and you've been put in charge of the brand new student, and it's your job to kind of walk them through the basics or just to keep them safe, if, if nothing else. You know, you were... Mm-hmm. We're about to throw you to the ground. Here's how you fall safely without breaking your back. You know, <laughs> um, I really loved those types of roles. Even when I was a young man on the mat, when I had just enough experience to, uh, you know, take the new people and walk them through the ropes. Okay. And in the Marine Corps, I got out as a sergeant, which you think is like mid-level management in most companies. Mm-hmm. So it was my job to keep the people below me trained, help them understand what their jobs were, because most of them had never deployed before. And I had been to two combat tours, so I had, you know, double the experience they did. So to walk them through, here's how you get your feet on the ground. Here's how you connect with the units you're supposed to be talking to, how you write your stories, take your photos and do it while keeping your head on your shoulders, not getting killed. That was my role in the Marine Corps eventually as I began to rise up in rank. So as I got out of the Marine Corps, I thought to myself, you know, I love teaching. I love passing on knowledge, you know, people that want to learn. And I had a lot of really impactful teachers when I was growing up in public school and the history, the, the history was a subject I loved the most. So I decided I was going to try to be a high school history teacher. So that's what I went to college for. Okay. Now I quickly discovered like most people that run dojos discover uh, the 35 grand a year that I was going to make doing that job was probably not going to fuel a quality of life that I wanted for my family. Yep, <laughs> so exactly. dojo owners could know exactly what I'm talking about there. And I, I thought to myself, all right, well, this is a great piece of advice I got, which I think leads a lot of people into opening dojos. Actually, it's find the thing that you love so much, you do it for free and then find a way to get paid for it. Now, for me, that wasn't running a dojo. I didn't have quite that amount of passion for any singular art. And I still don't for Aikido. I'm, I'm blessed to have people that take the time out of their lives to run dojos that I get to train at. But for me, it was communicating. It was passing on that knowledge, helping people get from A to B a little bit faster. And I saw people like Simon Sinek and Tony Robbins and Zig Ziglar and uh, Jim Rohn, you know, some of the older public speakers, motivational speakers out there. And I thought to myself, yeah, that looks like something that I would really have a lot of fun doing. And so I began to invest the time and the energy into transferring the public relations skills I had, the conflict communication skills I had into the public speaking sphere, where I could go to a conference and stand in front of a thousand CEOs and explain to them how the very best performers in the world were able to operate under these stressful environments and still get ahead of the rate of change itself. So just before we hopped on this call, I was actually doing that for a couple hundred people virtually. Um, They were working in call centers, this particular group, being able to walk them through how the world has changed and how do you pivot so that you don't have to worry about these changes hitting you smack in the face. And I use a lot of martial arts analogies when I, when I speak, you know, talk about judo, talk about Aikido, Mm -hmm. and that when a force is coming at us, the worst thing you can do is try to meet it head on and grapple with it. That might be, you know, really effective in jujitsu or MMA, but even those folks understand not to you know, quite meet force on force. It's how do we redirect it? How do we create a resolution by harnessing that force, being the pivot point, if you will, in that interaction, and hopefully getting a peaceful resolution at the tail end. And and I don't know about you, but I'd much prefer to end any fight that way, where we might've started as enemies, but at the tail end, we're drinking a beer together. That's my ideal outcome for any conflict. And that's something martial arts have definitely helped me develop. That's cool. So do you remember then your very first public speaking job after the military? And and kind of how that came about? 
Yeah, I was probably getting paid nothing because that's how most public speakers start. Yep. You volunteer to speak anywhere that will have you. So you think like in the old days when we used to do uh, martial arts demos and you would do those anywhere that you could set up a tent. You'd go to the county fair, you'd go to the uh, you know the community center, you know, anywhere that would have you, that's where you would show up. And you hope that enough people have interest, they get your flyer, they get your phone number and they come to the dojo to train. Maybe that's how you get them kind of involved in martial arts. That's how it was in the public speaking world. I was speaking at every civic organization in my uh, my town, you know, Kiwanis, Lions, Elks, you know, anywhere that would have me with the hope that some of these people might know folks that could hire me. And it ended up being a little different than I thought it was going to be. Uh, as most entrepreneurs discover, your plan is great until it actually hits the road. And then you realize that your plan has to be changed. Then the military is great at teaching people that as well. So to run my own business now, um, I've been able to present in front of 17,000 plus people, wow. multiple countries around the world, Fortune 100 companies. I've, you know, I'm able to advise their, their executive teams directly. So it's a great life, but it definitely started with the same values and tenacity that I learned in the early days of my martial arts practice which was you keep going until you either die or you win. And that's something that my instructors harp on even today, even though I've been practicing martial arts for 20 years and I'm a combat veteran of multiple tours, they don't let it phase them because they know I'm still there to get that lesson on the mat every day. Sean, you keep pressing until you win or you die. And you're probably not going to die during this class. So keep pressing. <laughs> and I really love that message. And I keep taking it in every class. Very cool. So let's pivot a little bit to, to your writing. Now you, you, you have the, I mentioned yeah. the nationally syndicated column. So which came first, the column or, or the writing books? Probably in tandem, actually. Okay. Um, and, and I'll tell you how I went about doing this. So for, and I'll try to put it in, in martial arts terminology, because I know that's the angle we're coming at it. Oh, from. definitely. If I see somebody who I have a lot of respect for in my dojo, you know, some high ranking black belt that I really admire personally and professionally, I'm going to look at how they move on the mat and I'm going to try to emulate them. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it may be because they have a different body type than me. It's not going to be exact, but I'm going to try to practice as closely as I can to the way they move, especially if the sensei is teaching them. That's who I'm trying to model. In business, it's the same way. The same principles can be applied. So I looked at the people that I had a lot of respect for. They were getting paid a lot more than me, like Simon Sinek, for instance. You know, He's probably got one of the top 10 most viewed TED Talks in the world. And I asked myself, what does he have? How is he building his, his business so that as an outside visitor, what are the things I notice when I go to his website or when I look at the books he's written or when I read his books? How do I model that? The same way that I would model my sensei when he's demonstrating something that I'm then expected to, to replicate. So I saw where they had spoken, the publications they'd been published in, how many books they'd written on what topics, uh, you know, all of the, the logos they had on their website or the companies they'd gotten to work with. And then I started asking myself, all right, there's my map. How do I begin constructing it for myself? And that gave me a battle plan. Same way that you'd have if you wanted to emulate the way that the sensei did a kata or the way they moved in tandem with a partner. Um, just modeling success essentially is how the, the column and the book and the you know mentions in Forbes and Inc. and CNN all kind of came together. Okay. So let's just, just really quick, just talk about the three books and I'll definitely put links in the show notes for them. Cause I want to make sure people can, can see them and, and learn about your books and stuff. Just uh, kind of go, I, I have the titles here and just talk a little a review of what each book yeah, is sure. about. Yeah. So the first book I wrote, it's called pivot point, turn on a dime without sacrificing results. And it's about pivoting with change. And the story that I tell in there, it's a, it's a narrative. And it was from a mission that I was able to run with, uh, at the time he was called uh, General Mad Dog Mattis. 
So he later on became the secretary of defense. A lot of folks know him as James Mattis or Jim Mattis, mm-hmm. but he was a Marine Corps general when I knew him. And we were engaged in a mission together that no one expected to survive. Um, they sent about a dozen vehicles into the heart of Fallujah in 2004 on a suicide mission, essentially, so much so that the title of the mission was called the Dead Man's Patrol. That's what they named it. Wow. Now, we all made it back out without a shot being fired, which made history. Um, however, the entire thing was classified for a variety of reasons until the recent uh, pullout of U.S. troops in Iraq. And so when they began to declassify these things, I was allowed to talk about it. So that book is that story. So how do you apply these martial principles of planning and briefing and execution and probably most importantly, debriefing? into the way that you run a business or a project or your martial arts career. So that's Pivot Point. Uh, the second book I wrote is called Universal Export. And that was more of a project around seeing life from a martial perspective, kind of very Aikido, uh, you know, one with the universe kind of a thing mm-hmm. in that I was always interested to know, hey, how do I work less and enjoy more? especially as an entrepreneur, or if there's anybody that's listening right now that's running a dojo, maybe asking yourself, I'm putting in all of this work, but where's the happiness in all of this? Because I think that's what I'm trying to pursue. Well, I discovered if I never defined what my goal was, I had a very slim chance of hitting it. So it's really a personal development book about defining that life purpose and then aligning your life so that it happens on a little more natural of a schedule rather than trying to grind it out. And the final book, the newest one that we released just this year, it's called Bulletproof Selling. And the subtitle of that one is Systemizing Sales for the Battlefield of Business. So imagine taking the martial mindset that someone might have after years of training on the mat and applying that into a sales role. So if anybody's in the field of sales or you're running a business and sales is one of the many hats that you wear, that book is all about how to apply the principles that we learn on the mat, setting clear objectives, practicing and training every day, and probably most importantly, improving. Even in small increments over the course of time, that's what makes a master. Wow. Actually, all, all three sound very interesting. I might have to check those out because podcasting, I, I, I sell sponsorship and stuff. And <laughs> and, sure. and with my voiceover business, I sell my voice. So it's it's a definitely definitely interested in that last one for sure. And that, that they all three sound very interesting. So I will definitely put links out there so everyone can check those out for sure. It's kind of our, our last few questions we're coming up on. But a friend approaches you and says, hey, I'm thinking of getting involved in the martial arts. What are some tips you give them or some advice you give them what to look for, what to avoid in schools and instructors? What are, you know, just some some general information you'd give someone who asked for that? Well, I'd ask them why they wanted to get into martial arts. And there's no wrong answer to that question. Right. But I think it's important that we clearly define that. And of course, that's a tough question to ask a seven-year-old, which I think is how old I was when I started. We don't really know. It's seven. Yeah, <laughs> we, right. it, it, it's really cool. You know, I'm like the guys in the movies. Okay, yeah. fair. Ninja Turtles. But if a, if a 20 or a 30 <laughs> or a 40 or 50-year-old came to me with that question, then I'd say, well, you know, I appreciate the interest. Why do you want to learn? What are you going to do with the information, with the training, with the skill set? And if they tell me, well, I want to be able to defend myself, that'll allow me to give them some very clear direction into which martial arts might be best. Tai Chi might not be the first stop if they're just worried about being able to get out of a street fight. You know, I might send them to a, a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu dojo for that. Uh, but if they tell me, you listen, you know, I've got my life in order. I'm, I'm just interested in getting, um, you know, good exercise and interested in figuring out, you know, how to, how to move as, you know, just a little more physically. Well, great. There's tons of dojos that can do that. And the rare occasion where somebody might say, I actually want to realize my innate divinity 
which believe it or not is what uh, the founder of Aikido said the purpose of Aikido was, oh. well, then I'd say go to Aikido. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so if you think of like all of the hippies, where, where am I going to send them? Probably into Aikido. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but uh, that's, that, that's the response that I would give them. I'd say, why? Okay. Why are you interested? And, and define that. And there was even some martial arts schools that before they'll even accept a student, they, they run them through that same process, you know, because they don't want somebody that's there for the wrong reasons, because it's a waste of everybody's time in that case. Exactly. So then in your, your 20 years of martial arts, I'm kind of curious your thoughts on MMA, the UFC, and, and kind of that whole thing and how it came into the martial arts world and how it's, it's changed things. What are, what are your thoughts on MMA? And, and are you a fan? I've never watched an MMA fight from beginning to end. Wow. One, it's a lot like modern gladiators, if you will, in that, you know, people are just pounding each other. Um, I've never watched a boxing match end to end either for the same reason. You know, if I want to see people get pounded on, well, I've got enough memories to think carry me a lifetime of what that actually looks like when there are no rules. And in a world like MMA, I mean, there have to be rules, right? There right. wouldn't be very many people left if you could just eye gouge someone as, as the first move out of the gate. Yep. <laughs> there'd, be no, there'd be nobody left in, in the entire organization. <laughs> um, and so there have to be rules. And I get that. I think that the danger that a lot of people have is they make the assumption that that's what fighting looks like. And I can tell you unequivocally, that is not what fighting looks like when it comes down to hand-to-hand combat and both of you are dedicated enough to your purpose that only one of you is leaving alive. And because I know that and I've seen it, well, it looks like, you know, on the battlefield firsthand, uh, I don't really have a lot of interest in following it as a sport. I think if it serves as a conduit for people to get into the martial arts, that's great. Because I think a lot of people, when they want to just emulate what they see on an MMA show, you know, or or in in a competition, um, they'll end up at a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu dojo or an MMA dojo. That's awesome. I think it's just as valuable and worthy as ending up at a CrossFit dojo. You know, whatever helps you become a better person, if it's MMA, if it's throwing weights around in a CrossFit gym, if it's getting on the treadmill or getting on the Peloton, um, you know, do the things that make you a better person that allow you to be more present in life. I fully support all of it. Very cool. So in your years of martial arts, is there a one or two philosophies that you've learned that are just very special to you, you keep coming back to? Absolutely. So there's one that I look at every day. Um, I had it made into a scroll oh. and it sits right in front of my desk. Um, you know, unfortunately we don't have video broadcast or I'd be able to show it to everybody. Uh, it's a Taoist philosophy and it's called a uh, muai, um, means effortless action. And that's something that I try to apply into my business, into my personal life, and definitely into my martial arts practice. It's a Taoist concept that took me years to even begin to understand but I always had a lot of respect for the people that made martial arts look effortless. And I'm sure you, you've seen people or you've seen videos yourself, or maybe you've, you've found yourself in those states occasionally where, man, it's just all clicking. It's all flowing. I don't even have to use strength. I'm just relying on my skill set and my knowledge of how to move in relation to my partner in order to get this done extremely effectively. That state of flow is something that I've been studying for years And so I always try to remember that. And that's a concept that I think first played into Tai Chi on account of Taoism being its core root, but it definitely applies into every other martial art. And a lot of Japanese sensei will be able to tell you that's exactly right. You're looking for effortless action inside of your art, because if there's effort involved, and this is something that we talk a lot about in Aikido, um, no amount of strength is going to be able to defeat an opponent stronger than you. But if you can figure out how do you move in the space in between those things, in between effort, and focus, kind of enter the zone, if you will, that's where magic tends to happen. And we can capture it on video. Wow, it's beautiful. We see it out of Olympians sometimes. Right. So that's, that's one philosophy for sure. 
the other one I think is just continual improvement. And that's definitely something that I carry off the mat into my daily life. Uh, because I've been in martial arts for you know a couple of decades now, there have been plateaus for sure. Uh, George Leonard wrote a great book called Mastery. He's an Aikidoist as well. Uh, but in this book, Mastery, he talks about these plateaus that happen to everyone on the path to mastery and that you get better and better and better. And then for a while, sometimes months, sometimes years, there's just no improvement. Well, it doesn't mean that improvement isn't being made. We're just not seeing it. And then suddenly it clicks and you jump up a level and not jump up a level in rank. Sometimes it equates to rank and sometimes it doesn't. But I've seen a lot of martial artists go through that. And I've definitely gone through it myself where just because I don't see progress being made, I have to remind myself it's incremental. It's the 0.001% better than I am today because I attended class than I would be if I hadn't. And those 0.001%, they add up and they compound over the course of a lifetime. That's why it's one of my favorite questions, because that's one thing I've never had the same answer from any guest. I, I love that question. Mm, I, I, love, I love the, di <laughs> the differences we hear. So a, a few fun ones to wrap it up. So what is there, if okay. you had to pick one martial artist that you, you admire, you look up to you know, throughout your, your life in martial arts, is there one you could uh, think of and why? Do they have to be living? No, they don't have to be living. They, they don't have to be someone okay. you've actually trained. It could be just someone you've read about. It could be you know anything, anyone you just look up to or admire. Um, I've got a lot of respect for the founder of Aikido. Mm -hmm. He was someone who was dedicated to peace in a time of war. So I've got a lot of, uh, of course, alignment with that based on my life story. And he dedicated himself to figuring out how do we resolve conflict? And he always said that Aikido is never about fighting. And that's always something that I've really valued in the martial art that I practice. And in all martial arts, really, I've never found a master of any martial art that said, we train here to get better at fighting. Because at some point, you're past the need to fight. And oftentimes, we, we, we use it as a joke. We say, if you find yourself in a fight, something went wrong. You know, you're really not practicing the way of the warrior if you find yourself in fights regularly, you know, unless you're, uh, you know, a, a policeman or you're on the battlefield. And even then, I know many cops that are great martial artists and they pride themselves on how little times they've ever actually had to physically manipulate somebody to the ground. They'd rather talk it out. Um, so I think uh, O Sensei would be my, you know, the one martial artist I wish I could sit down and have a beer with. Okay, perfect. And then do you have a favorite martial arts book? I'm actually looking at two of them. Okay. So one is called the uh, Hagakure, and it's the book that was made famous by a movie called Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai. Mm -hmm. And it was a great uh, Forrest Whitaker movie where he plays a modern samurai, really an assassin or a hitman. But he reads this book and, you know, brilliant little passages that were written by a samurai leader hundreds of years ago. Um, and it's really short passages. So it's great reading if you're just, you know, looking to get a little quick hit of philosophy. The other one is called The Code of the Samurai, and uh, the translation I'm holding is by a guy named Thomas Cleary. And this book is actually a translation of an older Japanese text called the Bushido Shoshinsu. And this was written by someone who had actually survived combat as a samurai in Japan. And it's a couple of short treatises on how to apply the warrior lifestyle. And it's written for a junior samurai. So, you know, how do you inculcate someone in the culture of the warrior, so to speak, when they're still kind of green? Interesting. That actually sounds really good. I'll have to check those out. That's another, another question I love because it, it adds more to my list. I love reading and I love martial yeah, arts Yeah, right. Books, You're never so. going to stop reading if you uh, keep doing that. <laughs> of course not. So, all right. Final two-part question. Uh, favorite yeah. martial arts TV show and favorite martial arts mm. movie? Oh, yeah. So favorite martial arts TV show, uh, Kung Fu, the original one with David Carradine. Nice. 
yeah, uh, that was a, a life choice I had to make. I, I wanted to emulate either David Carradine or join the military. So I realized that wandering around the country playing a flute would not guarantee me a meal. <laughs> and come to find out being in the military didn't guarantee me a meal either. So the joke was really on me. Nice. But uh, yeah, that was a great movie. Loved his, his kind of way of seeing the world, you know, uh, coming at it from just a, an, an open heart and open mindset. And that's actually why I ended up naming my company uh, Shoshin Consulting. So okay. beginner's mind. I always wanted to try to maintain that. And then the second question you had was favorite martial arts movie, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, quick on the on the TV show. Did you ever watch oh, the yeah. the sequel, The Legend Continues? I'm curious what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, I sure did. I sure did. Yeah, yeah. That's a good one, actually. Um, of course, you know, he's a little older yeah. and it's a little more fantastical yeah. in that, you know, they're, they involve like a sorcery and special effects and try to, you know, make that sound very esoteric Shaolin, but the, yeah, it was a good sequel as well. Yeah. Um, the original, I felt like, you know, being set in the old West, uh, very, very cool time oh, and place to be. Definitely. Yeah. Original is definitely better, but I, yeah. I did get a kick. I mean, I'll watch any martial arts. So, so I'll, I'll give anyone a chance, but I did, uh, I did enjoy the sequel to that too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, for, for movies, there's a series of them that are all by the same director and forgive, uh, forgive me, you know, it's all the listeners out there. I cannot remember the name of the director, but I give you the name of some of the movies. And they're um, very traditional samurai setting. So one is called After the Rain. Um, another one's called The Hidden Blade. And there's another one uh, that I cannot remember the name of that one, but they're all by the same director. So if you can find After the Rain or The Hidden Blade, you'll tend to see them as a, as a trio. And they're martial arts movies that probably have, I don't know, five minutes of fight scene in, 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 in each movie altogether. There's oh, very cool. few fight scenes. Uh, but the reason that I think they're so valuable is that they really have great character development. There's great plot lines, which is missing in a lot of martial arts movies. And they show you the mindset of these people that don't have to fight to prove themselves. And for me, you know, based on the interview we've had already, you could tell I, I value that highly. And I'm always interested in learning more about those kind of people. Definitely. Yeah. I'll, I've never heard of those ones. I'll have to look them up and see. I mean, I oh, might, yeah. well, I, I might've you know, seen you, them, but... <laughs> Maybe. And you got to get subtitles on them. Uh, but they're a couple of them, I think, are on Netflix. So oh. if you go looking for them, okay. Amazon Prime, Netflix, streaming. Yeah, you can find them. Okay. I will definitely check those out for sure. That's another thing. Same with movies. I'll, I'll watch if it's got martial arts in it. I'll watch it. I'll give it a shot. And I mean, I, I own mm-hmm. I own a few hundred martial arts movies on DVD and I'm always skimming the martial arts sections on Netflix. So I'm always, always looking for for fun stuff. Sure. And it's whether it's got subtitles, whether it's a current one, I'll watch them all. So it's all good. But well, Sean, I just want to thank you. This has been a lot of fun. I definitely have a, a great story. And, and I'm looking forward to, to reading some of your books and, and uh, watching uh, the some of these movies you recommended for sure. But any last minute uh, parting words you want to leave the listeners with? Yes, that uh, martial arts can be whatever you want it to be. It can be a way to become a better human. It can be a way to get in shape. It can be a way to further yourself in your professional career, even if you're not throwing punches and kicks at work. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the important thing that people tell me all the time, the most valuable thing to ever hear from a sensei in martial arts is keep practicing. Okay, great. I like that. That's a great way to end. Well, once again, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. And I will let you know when the episode's getting ready to air. Awesome, sir. It's been a pleasure. Look forward to chatting with everybody down the line. 
Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you'll join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.